You can stay standing as you return for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be looking this morning at Luke chapter 1, 26 to 38. Uh, God uh, is sovereign, and because He is sovereign, uh, He has this particular word uh, for our particular uh, life situation individually and corporately this morning. So may we uh, pay attention to the reading and the preaching of God's word. Let's hear this word. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who has, was called barren. For nothing is impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Amen. You may be seated. I know there was a little more up there than... Uh, so that was my fault. I told Jimmy more and I uh, just have too much to cover in this amazing section of scripture. Uh, I want to just ask you this morning as, as, I, uh, as we start, I want to write down just a, just a few answers for you if I can get onto the screen here. There we go. Sorry, that's my, uh, my fish picture there. I want to just write down a few answers um, for this question. In one word, describe the feeling that you have right now as you anticipate Christmas morning. Kids, adults, just give me, give me some words. Joy. Joy. Awesome. Let's fill up the screen. This should be easy. Excitement. Excitement. Sweet. Exhaustion. What was the other responsibility? What else? Say it again. Chocolate cake. Chocolate cake. I love it. <laughs> Great. What else? Yes. Thank you for stating the obvious that we're all thinking. A couple more. Say again? Voids. Voids. Great. Those are awesome. We could go on 
long time anticipating Christmas. But I, I just was thinking this week, just in preparing for this sermon, just thinking through, like, why is it that I have kind of these, you know, Disney calls it magic, right? But I want to use that, I want to steal that word back uh, and say, what is it about, like, discovery? There's something magical about this season. Uh, and maybe you're here this morning and the magic is still alive and you're really excited about it. And maybe the magic has been dulled. And as we read the scripture, you're like, huh, I've heard this a million times, right? Some of the hardest passages to preach are the ones that are so familiar. And so this one is very familiar. So I'm just asking you this morning, let's recapture a little bit of the magic of Christmas and the beauty of it and the excitement of it. And because this is a phenomenal story, and I hope I can at least do it a little bit of justice this morning. Because it begins, it's, it's really this, this idea of the ordinary and the extraordinary coming together. So I just want to look at those two things this morning, the ordinary and the extraordinary. So first of all, the ordinary. Look, look, at, look at who this is happening to. First of all, well, I want, you to, I want you to look at this text with me in your Bibles and notice the first thing um, that comes to, comes to us is that it's got this announcement, this angel is going to come. We'll talk about that in just a second. <clears throat> this angel is going to come to a town, to a city in Galilee named Nazareth. So I have a map up here for you. And I want you to, I don't know if you can notice this or not as I zoom in to Nazareth. I don't know that I've ever known this before as I started researching a little bit. It's just the geography. It just helps fill out some of your imaginations. Like, Jesus kind of grew up on Signal Mountain. It's, it's a plateau above kind of this desert area. And you can see, like, it's kind of these rolling hills with these, these really high cliffs to get up to it. Uh, just to give you a sense, of this is a town that would be podunk nowhere. Uh, scholars believe there was probably a population of about 500 people during this day. 500 people. And there's this one, uh, there's this instance of that God's going to visit a podunk little town, the ordinary, and he's going to go to a girl named Mary. So if if it doesn't strike you enough that it's this podunk little town, that the God of the universe who called it into existence is going to bring the most miraculous thing that's ever happened in the history of the world, he's going to become flesh, and he visits this tiny little whisper town, and no one's going to hear about it. I mean, what kind of God? God, like we have cultural influencers today, right? God, the greatest cultural influencer in the history of the universe, comes in like a whisper. What does it reveal to you what his character is like? What is he like that he would do such a thing as this? And that he would go to someone, the next part of this is just Mary, right? This young girl. How many of you in this, in this room are 15 years old or younger? 15, any 15 year olds? Just the 15 year olds, raise your hand. Hi, hi, I'm proud. Hi, I'm proud. Here we go. All right. 
Most people believe that Mary was your age. 15. Could you imagine a sleepy little town, one little family, one little girl who was 15 years old? God chooses the weak things of the world to confound the wise. God chooses the low, the slow, the hidden. Three times it mentions that Mary is, or before we do it, she's a woman at right this, this time and time again. Look at verse 38. You notice what she says. Let it be to me according to your word at the end of this passage. She's a woman of deep faith. So much so that she says at the end of this miraculous thing that God comes and visits this 15-year-old little girl and she says, let it be to me, as you have said. Just a little side note, does that ring a bell to you? That a son that she would have would be in a garden 33 years later and be on his knees praying out to his father, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Could it be that Jesus learned those very words from his mother? In this moment, as she retold the story to her son, as she's retelling the story, no doubt the eyewitness that Luke has interviewed here is Mary. There's too many intimate details for it to probably be someone else. She studied and memorized the Hebrew Bible. Did you, did you notice in Mary's song, I don't know if, if you've done it, if you just go back today and look through your Bibles in Mary's song and then look at all the cross-references that your Bible, if your Bible has them in there, she, she is quoting from and inferring from 35 different Old Testament passages in the Magnificat. She's 15 years old. She's got a deep faith. She studied the scriptures intensely. Mary knew of those promise, what those promises meant. She knew her Bible. She was a student of the word. She found life in it. Imagine the sense of wonder she must have felt in this moment. And then we have the fact that she's a virgin. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. But it's stated three times here in a very short time frame. Simply means that she's never been intimate with a man. I'll let your parents explain that more in detail. She's betrothed to Joseph, to this guy named Joseph. This is not just kind of your normal American engagement. It's not like, hey, put a ring on it like Beyonce says. And you, you know, put, put a ring on it and they're there and they're yours. Uh, kind of the way we do American engagement. This is betrothed is more of a legal act. And if this was broken, it meant serious, serious consequences in their culture and their time. So to be betrothed was more than what we call an engagement. There was a bride price that Joseph likely paid to have Mary become his wife. There was legal oaths taken. The families agreed upon it. This is a pretty serious uh, betrothal that was going on here. And then we, know, we learned that Mary was favored the word favor uh, is given to Noah, Abraham, and several people throughout Scripture. It just favored means grace. That Mary was a woman that had been given grace. God's going to use Mary 
because he loves her. He, he chose her in this tiny little village, this 15-year-old little girl, to be the one who would bear the Son of God. She found favor in God's eyes. And this doesn't mean that Mary was some particularly special person. I think uniquely now we can say, yeah, we, don't, we believe that Mary was particularly special to bear the Son of God. But she wasn't sinless. She wasn't perfect and righteous in all her ways. But she was favored by God. She was shown grace by God. And in one particular reason, for one particular moment, he picked her out of all the women that lived in the face of the planet at that time. He showed favor and grace on her. It's pretty, pretty amazing. This would have been really unusual for Mary to hear. It's, I think it's why she reacts partially why she can't understand this saying that the angel is, is giving her because favor was given to the rich and to the powerful and to the wise in their days. It's why, it's why like when the rich young ruler, when Jesus interviews the rich young ruler and they're having this conversation and he knows he has everything and he goes away and the disciples, and Jesus says it's harder for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle than to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples, you know what their reaction is? Then who can be saved? Their understanding of what it meant to be favored was based on their social status, their amount of money that they had. So when Mary hears that she's favored, the angel gives, Gabriel gives this message that she's favored, it's perplexing to her because it's not her cult the cultural norm. So God has again come down to the ordinary and he's shown favor. God uses the weak things, the slow, the hidden. Now hold on just for a second because this means that God gives favor to people like you and me. Do you believe that about yourself today? And I'm not talking about some social confidence, like self-confidence kind of thing, which I think is a good thing. But I'm talking about confidence in the Lord. Do you believe that you are that special to God? You are. You're favored. You've been given grace upon grace by the Lord. Because he loves you. Uniquely, especially if God if the God of the universe chose a 15-year-old little girl in the middle of a small village of the population of 500 in the midst of all the people in the world and he showed his grace and favor, he can do that at 308 Alt Road to my daughter, Laura, to my sons, to my wife. He can do that where your address is. He brings grace and favor right into your bedroom, right into your living room on a daily basis. He loves you that much. Maybe you're thinking, I'm, I'm just, I'm not anything spectacular like Mary. I'm just a student or I'm just a mom or I'm just a this. You fill in the blank. Yeah, God's most glorious kingdom work is being done whether you believe it or hold on to it, or whether the devil whispers these constant shaming things in your ear, whether you believe it or not, God uses the mundane, the indiscreet, the slow, the low, 
the hidden to do his miraculous kingdom work, and he's doing that through you. A young girl in a small town getting married to, soon to a guy named Joseph. She's faithful. She's a Jew who studies the Hebrew Testament, Old Testament, and she's been shown favor. The ordinary. So hold on. Look at verse 31. Hold on to your hats because it's about to get extraordinary. The ordinary and the extraordinary here. Look at verses 31. Let's read them again. And behold, Gabriel, the angel, comes and says, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him of the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. There's something in the midst of the ordinary, the low, the slow, the hidden, there's something high and powerful and miraculous occurring. Notice the terms that are being used here. Right? First of all, there's this angel Gabriel. Gabriel's this warrior angel of God who comes and delivers this message. And notice it says that he's sent by God, this messenger that goes out. And he tells Mary, you're going to you will conceive in your womb. In other words, you will become pregnant in your womb. And we're going to hit on that in just a minute, I promise. I keep deferring it. And who's she going to conceive? You're going to call his name Jesus, which means he's going to save his people from their sins. There's something extraordinary getting ready to happen here. And it says that he'll be great. You just, I just want to sit on that term for a moment. The angel Gabriel says, not only is his name going to be Jesus and he's going to save his people from his sin, he's going to be great. Notice all the modifiers that are given in here, all the adjectives that are given here. He will be great. He'll be called son of the most high. He's going to be given a throne of his father, David. He'll reign over a house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. I mean, it's like, stacking up all these acts. This is the extraordinary about to happen to you, little ordinary Mary. Profound to think, who is this? Is he great? Let me just try to read this and summarize. I just was thinking about what, what is it about this great one? The one who would claim later on in a few chapters from here in Luke 4, Jesus would say, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recover sight to the blind, and set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus would proclaim his greatness 30 years later in the same town, this town, little sleepy town of Nazareth, in their synagogue, And then they'd want to throw him off a cliff. They couldn't handle his greatness. Is he great? The one who would be tempted in every way as we are, yet never, ever, ever give in to sin? The one who would give sight to the blind? The one who would make the lame walk? The one who would raise the dead? The one who would do miracles, signs, and wonders? The world has never seen or never seen since? 
The one who, when he looked into people's eyes and they knew he encountered someone significant, powerful, glorious, compassionate, the one whose truth was given to peasants, rulers, and kings, he was perfect in all his ways. He was a son, a brother, and a friend. Is he great? Is he great? Should I go on? He loved like no one else has ever loved. The masses and the individual. He loved you. So even to the point that he would take the penalty of sin and death for you. Giving his life as a ransom for many. He conquered death. He raised the dead. He ascended into the clouds. And now the dust of the earth sits in the throne room of heaven where he rules and reigns forever. And he will return someday. And make all things new again. Is he great? On that final ushering of his kingdom, at the sound of his name, every soul in heaven, on earth and under the earth, will bow the knee to him. Is he great? In case you aren't convinced, by my words, listen to the words of a book about a conquering king in Revelation 5. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a king and priest to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands upon thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, and all, of them, all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped him. Is he great? great. I mean, Gabriel is just giving this, the news that this is who Mary is conceiving in her womb. The great and awesome God who sits enthroned now above the heavens, reigning and ruling at God's right hand. It's like Luke can't, the, the angel Gabriel can't help himself as he goes on to the son of the most high, the throne of a king, reign forever, a kingdom that won't end. He's holy and he's the son of God. It's almost like, does, does God really work in the mundane? Is God really going to work in you? Edith, Shape, Edith Schaefer was asked a question one time in an interview. Frances Schaefer's wife, and she was asked, who, do, who would you say is the greatest, most influential women on the face of the planet? One of the, who's the greatest woman and the most influential person on the planet? 
You know what her response was? We don't know her name. She's probably a woman in India sitting in a cancer ward, faithfully battling cancer, depending on the promises of God. Don't you love that? That's the beauty of what God has done here. He's taken the ordinary and he's done the extraordinary. Church should never be boring. Following Jesus should never be boring because he takes the ordinary and does the extraordinary. Is it a little bit of the magic of Christmas coming back for you this morning? Let's continue in our text. Look at verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. How would this be? She asked. And you may be asking the same question. How, how can this God create life inside of a virgin? Uh, how do we understand that? And I'm going to do my best to explain it a little bit. But it's one of the profound mysteries that we'll never fully grab a hold of. This virgin conception of by the Holy Spirit. Uh, let me read from this. Um, uh, Dallas Willard wrote, wrote this about this. It says, Jesus' conception was miraculous, which means that God bypassed in part the normal process of reproduction to create a new life. Firstly, Mary was a virgin, had never engaged, engaged in sexual relations with anyone. Today, we know that the genetic mixing takes place at conception, resulting in the creation of a new human being. When male sperm penetrates and fertilizes a female egg, since Mary did not conceive in the normal way with Joseph or anyone else, and Jesus was, ma was male, we are led to believe that the Holy Spirit supernaturally created the embryo of Jesus by mixing male genes with those taken from Mary and the female side. The Holy Spirit is the energizing factor by which Jesus is conceived in the womb of a virgin. The Holy Spirit was the divine creative element, if you will, of fashioning Jesus in an, into an embryo, into the multiplication of the DNA, and everything that happens in a normal development of an embryo is happening with Jesus, but begins with this miraculous creative element of the Holy Spirit. It's really fascinating that it said Mary is really perplexed by this, and she says, how is this going to happen? And he uses the words that overshadow. And it's the same term that's used in Exodus when, when God, when the glory of God would enter into the tabernacle and would overshadow them and his presence would be with them. It's the very same word that's being used here for Mary. In other words, in some ways, the tabernacle is coming into the womb of Mary and God's presence is going to be present in the womb and create life. Now, hold on with me, because this is, this is like mind-blowing stuff that I've never heard before and never talked. I've never heard anybody speak about this. When the Spirit overshadowed Mary, the Son of God, 
was joined to a human embryo by the power of the Spirit. Just think about that. This, This doctrine, what you're hearing right now, seems like craziness to the world. And I want to be very clear this morning that if you don't believe in the virgin birth, the virgin conception and birth of Jesus Christ and a virgin named Mary, then you might not be a follower of Jesus. This is a vital doctrine of the church. To be a follower of Jesus, you must believe this. As hard as it is to believe. But by God's grace and his faith, we must believe in this miraculous work of the Spirit in the life of of this woman. We stated in our Apostles' Creed, our Nicene Creed, all the creeds of the church have it in there. I want you to think about this. I want you to think about this statement right here. This is just profound by Gerald Hawthorne. This just blows my mind. Of no one else has it ever been said that his conception and birth was of the Holy Spirit without the aid of a human father. Just as the Spirit of God in the very beginning hovered over the primal waters and brought order out of chaos, cosmos out of waste and desolation, the Holy Spirit in the fullness of time overshadowed the Virgin Mary and brought forth a flesh, a fresh order of humanity in the person of Jesus. Jesus was a new departure in human life. His birth by the Spirit was that which made him, in the words of Paul, the last Adam, the new person, the head of a new race. Do you understand what that's getting at? That this season is not only about the birth of a Savior, but it's about the birth of a new humanity. The second Adam, the one, the first Adam who failed, is now God is is entering time and space to overcome the effects of the first Adam, and the incarnation is the beginning of that accomplished righteousness of Jesus Christ. The incarnation, this moment, is this God-given spirit, the regenerative par excellence, provided the human race with a new beginning. God gave it a fresh start, a start free from sin and the crippling effects of sin. It's why Jesus had to be born of a virgin. So that the seed of the man, the seed of Adam, wouldn't be passed on from generation to generation Jesus entered in, God's spirit entered in, giving birth to a woman, giving birth in a woman, in a womb, to guard against the impact of the first Adam, that Jesus might be born wholly the Son of God. You may be asking, does does Jesus' holiness, the conception in a miraculous way, does it make Jesus less than fully human? I love Gerald Hawthorne's argument here. He said it depends on what your definition of human is. It's quite interesting. This this can only be true if your supreme qualification for what it means to be human is not sin, but imago Dei. Does that make sense? Right, we're, sometimes we hear 
often we hear and remind ourselves of our sinfulness. And sometimes we can hear that so much that it becomes the the consuming characteristic of what it means to be human. It is not. The fact that you're created in the image of God makes you primarily human. Rejoice in that. Be a good test is is not of our view of Christ's incarnation and redemption, but to be human is first and foremost to bear the image of our creator. That's to be supreme, not our depravity. I think this is what the tone of scripture is. I'll read one last quote for you here. He says, just as God did not create the first Adam ex nihilo, which means out of nothing, but chose to form him from the dust of the ground and from the earth, he was subsequently to inhabit and over which he was to rule. So the Spirit of God did not create the last Adam, Jesus, out of nothing, but shaped him from the substance of a human mother. He thus maintained the organic connection between the two humanities. That's a mouthful there, I realize. But here's what, I, here's what I'd love to, to end with you, is that this moment of Jesus' conception in the womb of Mary is the birth of a new humanity and the birth of our Savior. Does it make you think, if Jesus is the birth of the new humanity, what does the scripture mean to you now? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's what happens at Christmas. That's what happens when the very same Holy Spirit who brought life Inside a womb brings life inside your heart. A new creation starts. The old is gone and the new has come. Brother and sister, let's live like that's true. No longer be dominated by your sin, by your total depravity. Be dominated by the fact that the Holy Spirit has made you new. Let's celebrate the Lord's Supper because of that. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you. Thank you, thank you, for you are great and awesome in all your ways. How is it possible, Lord Jesus, that you would find this little girl in a village and do what you did? How can it be that you would also find me in my house in this little town of eight or nine thousand and you would do something miraculous with me. It's because you're a God of, of new beginnings. You love to make all things new. So Lord Jesus, may we celebrate that this Christmas and help us now as we celebrate that in the Lord's Supper. Amen.